Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What makes a great round of golf is your short game. And when it comes to putting, alignment may be the most important part of the equation. That's why Odyssey continues to set performance standards with the new triple track putters. Three distinct alignment lines are centered on every triple track putter head. That's the same visual technology that lands jets on aircraft carriers. You'll be amazed at how easy it is to line up so you can focus on making a great stroke. Get lined up with the new triple track putters at callawaygolf.ca. The coronavirus pandemic has changed the arc of 2020. Many people are uneasy about their health and they're worried about how the pandemic is going to affect their livelihoods. Already, it's knocked out large portions of the Canadian economy and it's driven unemployment to the highest level it's been in decades. I'm Gabe Friedman and you're listening to Down to Business. I'm a business reporter for the Financial Post and I'm filling in for my colleague Emily Jackson while she's on maternity leave. For the next few weeks, I'll be talking to guests about the challenges and opportunities of reopening Canada. On this week's episode, I talked to Jackie Parchment, Chief Executive of Mercer Canada. It's one of the largest human resources consulting firms in the world, which means it advises the largest companies in Canada on their hiring, their benefits and pensions, and a host of other topics. So Parchment has a good view of what's happening in workplaces throughout the country. She's also one of the few black CEOs of a major company in Canada, and she came here in the 1970s from Jamaica while still a teenager. We spoke about her own experience as a black woman rising through the ranks of Mercer and about race and diversity in corporate Canada. Parchment told me that the intersection of life and work is much larger right now as more people work from home. And from an economic perspective, the pandemic is hurting women and visible minorities more than other groups. As we reopen the economy, she said forward-looking companies need to be thinking about what type of support their workforce needs, or they risk further exacerbating the lack of diversity in corporate offices. Despite these challenges, Parchment told me she's heartened by the conversations that she's been having with other CEOs just in the last few weeks. It feels, she said, to her, like we've reached a critical moment in which changes around race, racism, and diversity finally seem possible. Jackie, I want to dive into my questions, so thank you for coming on the show. The pandemic has turned the economy upside down. From your perspective at Mercer, I'm wondering if you've seen any employment patterns or hiring patterns that have surprised you. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. Um, you know, they're, they're broadly speaking, Gabe, I think three groups of uh, employees at this point in time, there's individuals who have lost their job because they're just in sectors that are more vulnerable, you know, hospitality, um, retail, uh, and those certainly tend to be, I think, disproportionately people of color um, and women. Uh, the second group would be individuals who are on the front lines and who have to make a choice as to whether they go to work and risk their health or whether they lose their income. Uh, and again, uh, you know, my observation would be that, that 
those would be positions disproportionately held by by women and visible minorities. And then the third group would be people like uh, you and me. We haven't lost our jobs. We get to work from home in a safe space. Our expenses are probably down due to the pandemic. So economically, maybe even more fortunate. And certainly, you know, I would say visible minorities are less in that group. So that would be my first observation. The picture you just painted didn't sound so good. Do you think that this pandemic is really going to really set back diversity in the workplace? Yeah. So it depends on what you mean by the workplace. So I, I you know, let's take the third group, <laughs> the because when we talk about diversity in the workplace, it's really, we really are talking usually about white collar workers, kind of corporate Canada. And so, you know, it, it's hard because it, the data around, around race is almost non-existent in Canada, right? Like we have census data that comes out every five years. StatsCan has just started tracking effective July. So it's hard to draw conclusions, but there are a couple of things I would say that give me pause, right? So if we think about what's happening in corporate Canada, uh, for all of us working at home, um, you know, there's a big intersection between work and life. So you, you're working at home, you may have kids that are not in school, uh, and you, you have to engage in teaching them and, and caring for them. You may be worried about elderly relatives and spending time on that. And to the extent that women tend to disproportionately be focused on caregiving, I think there is a concern to make sure that the pandemic does not set us back in terms of gender. So if you imagine somebody who's working from home and kind of multitasking in an extreme way for several months, how does that affect? Probably it's a her career, right? So it's something that we are encouraging our clients to think about. These seem like sort of permanent, long lasting trends. And I'm wondering if there's any sort of fix that can sort of try and jolt us out of this. Yeah. So for let's, let's take again, sort of corporate Canada. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think this has to be something that sets women back if employers are aware of it and, and, and help manage it. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, making it clear that if you've got to take some time off or take a couple hours out of your day that you won't be penalized, making it clear that if you can afford to do so and you want to, taking a couple months off, for example, to be with your kids in the summer, that that's okay and that's not going to set you back. So being very deliberate and talking about this openly and talking about it at every level of management in your workforce so that it is a known issue and you don't let it set women back, that you work with your female colleagues to address these concerns. I think that we could, we can get through this, you know, with where we are with gender equality intact. But if we don't call out the issue, if we don't take steps to address it, then it could become a concern. Are you seeing companies doing anything like this? Like, what's your sense of how, whether companies are really responding to this challenge? Forward-thinking companies are spending time now looking at what's happening and what's unfolding with COVID and really paying attention to the ramifications. And it's everything from, you know, making sure that your population 
has what they need to be safe and healthy across the board, making sure there's the right mental health support, um, making sure there's the right physical health support. So there's lots and lots of digital tools that you can use to, you know, help support colleagues at this time. If you do that, you will likely disproportionately support women, which will be really helpful. For example, access to, to telemedicine, right? Um, you're able to call a doctor and deal with the situation live quickly if you have a child that's sick or if you're not feeling well. And that saves a lot of time. That saves a lot of mental stress. So we see lots and lots of clients actually addressing those issues. Um, and then in terms of what's happening more broadly with women taking time out for the workforce, yeah, absolutely. Conversations around the best way to, to handle that. Is it to offer up the option proactively of leaves of absence or going down to reduce work schedule and making it safe to do that rather than have your your workforce being afraid to come to you and ask for that and wonder what it's going to do to their career. I saw somewhere that you said one of the reasons why you're you feel so committed to helping women as well as new people to this country is because your own parents, when they came here, couldn't get jobs in their fields. And I was wondering if you can talk about their experience coming to Canada. Actually, we all moved to Canada from Jamaica when I was 14. My mom was a vice principal in a high school, um, and my dad had started out in education, but had a, a fairly senior government position where he was you know, interestingly responsible for setting up an, a network of track and field support clubs across the island, which actually has helped <laughs> greatly, um, you know, the success we've seen in, in Jamaican track and field. So wow. uh, moved to Canada in the late 70s and absolutely 100% could not get a job in their field. And combination of you know, they'd hear you're too qualified, um, you're too old or too senior for an entry level position, but you don't have Canadian experience. I don't really know why why being a teacher in Canada would have been so much different than being a teacher in Jamaica, but but that's what they heard. And you know, it it was very very um, very difficult at the time. Uh, like many other immigrants, they found a way. They eventually opened their own business and had a great life and it's been good. But uh, my dad passed away last year and, you know, we were going through his papers and we found all the letters that he had written and all the resumes and all the letters of recommendation. And it just reminded me of how difficult it can be for new immigrants. And it shouldn't be this way. If you feel comfortable, you mentioned that when you went through your dad's letters after he passed, that you found a lot of these rejection letters. And I'm wondering if you had known about those or if in retrospect, you have any sense about how that sort of experience affected him and shaped his life. I'm, I'm torn between being sad for him and sad for Canada, to be honest. My father was an amazing man and responsible in so many ways for, for where I am today. But he, he was also, you know, a uh, somebody who would didn't want to show how difficult it was for him. I mean, I was, I was 14 and, and, you know, 14 year olds are, are naturally selfish. So I knew that he was getting rejected. I, I don't know that it really impacted me as much as it does now in retrospect. And he certainly tried really hard not to show it. Now, Canada was, has been very, very good to our family. So despite all of this, he was able to 
get a job, save enough, start a business, actually be pretty successful and have a, a very comfortable life. And um, my brother and I have had really great lives as well. So, um, but I, I do... I do wonder in retrospect, if somebody had hired him, what that would have meant for Canada. I can understand why you would wonder that. So you came here when you were 14. I'm wondering what your own experience was like starting off here, not really as an immigrant, but still as a person of color and as a woman. Yeah, so um, I, uh, I studied mathematics and actuarial science at university, uh, so have always worked in more kind of male dominated fields. So my first experience with Corporate Canada was at age um, 19. I I started doing co-op work terms because I was working my way through school and kind of walked into Corporate Canada and it was, you know, it was just a really different world, right? So, um, you know, it felt like everybody senior in the firm talked about golfing with their clients and, you know, they were the there were the um, special hockey clubs where it seemed like all our senior execs <laughs> uh, played for the certain hockey teams. You know, the way we the way clients were entertained, the entertainment in the office, who was visible kind of on podium making speeches or representing the firm. All of that was just like a big, oh, my God, so different from my life. Right. <laughs> How did you learn to like relate to this these people whose interests were so different from yours? Well, you know, to be honest, I, I just had to find a different way, you know. So I'm a relatively collegiable person. So, you know, just in day-to-day engaging, I, I found it, it it was fine to engage with my colleagues. The big issue was finding a path to get to the kind of client work that I wanted, right? And feeling that could I do that if I didn't learn to be a really good golfer or a really good hockey player, which um, if you see my ice skating was zero chance of happening. Um, So, you know, uh, like many other people, I just worked twice as hard, right? Um, Had a couple of breaks and some angels actually that at a certain point in my career said, hey, she can really do something good and reached out actively to help me along the way. So, I would say it was an uncomfortable experience. When when you're talking about diversity, the term you hear a lot is diversity and inclusion. I like to talk about diversity and belonging because I think it's easier for people to relate to that second term. And, you know, what I've tried to do as I've gotten more senior in my career is to really encourage, you know, my leaders to step back and think about what makes somebody belong. And how, how do we create a more level playing field around that, right? People of color at the bottom or the middle level, you know, when you were starting out and as you got a little further advanced, when you became CEO, I have to imagine that never really changed, that you were still one of the only people of color at that level. And I'm wondering if you ever found yourself sort of having to explain diversity a lot more, you know, maybe racism, maybe even the protests that are going on to some other colleagues at other companies or within your own company? Yeah. So first I would say, you know, as I was coming up kind of through the the corporate ranks, I certainly would have been one of a few visible minorities. Um, now that I'm CEO, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, um, I'm, I'm pretty different, right? So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Now what I, what I am really heartened by is 
the kinds of conversations that I've been having over the past over the past few weeks. So what we witnessed um, with the situation that we saw with, you know, George Floyd and others in the United States, acute, extreme violence and murder against black people, you know, certainly initially there were, there were colleagues who were horrified, were really emotional, but almost a disconnect to Canada. So, you know, explaining that there, there was, there's no black person that I know who hasn't, hasn't been stopped by the police for reasons they don't understand, um, who would not look at those images and be terrified that, that those extra stops could result in that kind of violence. It is, it is not something that could not happen here. It absolutely could happen here. There is definitely education there. I think we are having a moment where it is possible that we could see change going forward. There's just such a, there's so much conversation there's really an extreme raising of awareness. And so that gives me hope. You mentioned every, every person of color knows someone or has been stopped by a police and questioned. Is there any experience that you share with other people about how this has happened to you? Yeah. So, so black people are not a hom- homogenous community. So we come in all different shapes. So my family is mixed. And I am on the lighter side of the spectrum and I am a woman. So if, you know, when I've been by myself, I don't get stopped, right? I'm safe. No one is threatened by me. Um, Have my cousins been stopped? Have I had um, partners that have been stopped? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And, you know, in, in all cases, it's been, it's ended safely, um, But one of the interesting things in my family is because we're mixed, um, there are kids in the family that have blonde hair and blue eyes, and there are kids in the family that will grow up to look like George Floyd. And the fact that you have to have different conversations about how you interact um, with the police and how you go out in the world is incredibly sad. It's incredibly sad. Yeah, for sure. I know that a lot of people who, even people who feel strongly about stamping out racism, sometimes feel skeptical about the pace of change or the possibility of change. And I'm wondering whether you've witnessed any changes throughout your own career. Oh, so much change, so much change. So listen, at one of my first jobs, I remember, you know, my second week going to a big meeting of everybody in our department. And we had a guest speaker who was, um, he was like second in command at the firm. And he came in and he started the session by making a racial joke about black guys in an elevator. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, if you did, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, now I will say that, that my boss basically stood up right after and basically said, this is inappropriate. And so that was good. But I mean, if you did that today, you'd be fired. Right. So instantly there'd be no question. So, so, so certainly, certainly there's been change. You know, I, there's an increasing awareness that if we're going to move forward and, and build the brightest possible Canada, that we've got to involve everybody. In the short term, the, there are issues with employment, you know, with the pandemic. Certainly, we've seen people being laid off. But the reality is that in the long term, most employers are really concerned about a talent shortage in Canada, right? Having the, the right, the kinds of workers that can move your company forward. So 
if you're not looking at the broadest possible group to get the skills you need, that's going to be a huge problem for you. And I definitely have seen increasing awareness of that. I also think that if you look, again, if you go back to the protesters and you look at all those highly engaged, passionate, young white people protesting, we know that that millennials and the generations after them expect and want diversity. They're going to choose an employer who can deliver on that. And that was made even more acutely um, aware as we saw the past few weeks unfold. So if you're a, if you're a smart leader and, and you're looking at who's protesting and you're looking at what we're hearing and, and how strongly people feel about this, you're not just worried about, can you get the right black colleagues or the right colleagues of color? You're worried about, if I don't do this, what happens to everyone else that I, I want to have on board at my workplace? So um, that's something, you know, we're not talking clearly about that, but I, I think that that's, that's going to be a factor. It's not, it's not just having doing the right thing for minorities in your workforce. It is that if you don't do the right thing, the populations that you want to attract to whom diversity is important, you're going to have a problem with them. Yeah, that's a powerful motivating factor. When you became CEO, were there things you tried to change about the work environment at Mercer? So um, I would say that I, it wasn't like a, a light switch. I, I've been trying, you know, my whole career. And certainly when I went on to our Canadian leadership team. Uh, so this is my kind of my third executive role at Mercer Canada. Uh, and certainly in my other two roles, I was, I was very much trying to move the needle. So, you know, when I became the leader of our Toronto office, kind of the managing partner of the office, we completely did a deep dive on everything that related to belonging and how your sense of belonging uh, would be impacted by walking into the office. So we got rid of uh, our fancy golf tournament at Glen Abbey, which, by the way, the, the client attendance had been declining for years. We, God forbid, <laughs> we've given up our leave season's tickets and we've said, hey, you entertain your clients any way you want. You take them to whatever event you think they'll enjoy and, you know, where it meets our conflict of interest guidelines. You know, we're very, we became very, very cautious of every single event, large or small, having a diverse a diverse slate kind of in front of the population. And, you know, most recently we have committed that we are going to hire university grads that look like the cities that they're working in. So for Toronto, that means a pretty diverse group, right? And if you figure out what you need to do that, it means there are universities that have classes that look like Toronto and there are universities that have classes that don't. So we go to certain universities, we don't go to others. So yeah, lots of change, but I don't want you to think that this happened just in the last year and a half since I've been CEO. I've certainly been trying to affect change over several years. And I have to say, very proud to be at Mercer because I've had a lot of help, encouragement and partnership along the way. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Jackie. That was Jackie Parchment, CEO of Mercer Canada. Thank you so much for listening to Down to Business and thank you to our team. Music and production by Bryce Hall, editing by Yadula Hussein, and web support by Pamela Heaven. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, in for Emily Jackson, and I'll be back next week as we continue to explore reopening Canada. Until then, you can find all your business news on financialpost.com.